Friends, there's a, there's a kind of joy that the Bible talks about that if we're honest about it, it feels often foreign and unfamiliar to us. We read about this joy that Paul talks about in the New Testament and it, it says it's complete, it's overflowing, it's, it's constant even through pain. And we long for that, but at the same time, when we try to grasp it, does it not often feel like we're grasping water? You can't really, it's not really tangible. What is it? And we close our Bibles after reading about it. What do we see? We see uncontrollable mood swings, right? We see upon circumstances, right? Why is that? Well, I'd like to propose, because our view of joy world that it has been by the word of God by scripture. There's an old Greek myth. You've heard about it. The story is Zeus uh, put all kind of things in a box. And Pandora, out of her curiosity, opened the box. And out of the box, all evil stuff kind of came out, right? There is sickness. There is death. There is poverty. Um, interesting. Old age came out. Apparently, old age is in that category. Um, the Bible disagree. Uh, work, work came out of it. Work is an evil, according to this. But at the end of it, if you read it, not many people know this part of the tale. Pandora finally closed it. She closed the box at the end, and there was one thing that was left in the box. It was the hope for joy. The hope for joy was left in the box. Hope of joy separated and disconnected from all the bad stuff. And this is a telling tale to our own view of joy or the world's view of joy at times, isn't it? Joy often feels like something locked in a box far away. And if we find that thing, if we find our it in life, whatever it is for you, marriage, retirement, a good career, whatever it is, then we find that box, we find that it, then it'll bring us joy. But also it's, it's, it's a telling tale to the world's view of joy that says joy has nothing to do with all the bad stuff. Joy has nothing to do with all the evil stuff. It says joy and suffering can't go together. You can't be sick. You can't have financial difficulties. You can't have relational trouble and have joy all at the same time. It's either or. That's what this is saying. This essentially is the message of secularism. That's what secularism says. Go find your it, whatever it is for you. For some of you who are single, it's, it's when I'm married. For some of you who are married, it's when I'm single again. That was a joke. <laughs> if you don't have kids, it's when I have kids. If you're not in a good place in your career, it's when I get to a good place in my career. When you have a good place in your career, it's when I retire. That's secularism. And whenever you find your it, then you'll finally arrive in life, right? Arrive where? Well, in a place far away from current dissatisfactions and pains. What is secularism saying? It's saying joy has no relationship with suffering, can only be found when you find your it. It will take you far away from suffering. That's where your hope lies. But then you read the New Testament, and it speaks of a joy totally different than this. You see Peter saying in 1 Peter chapter 4, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering insofar as you share in suffering. That's, that's different. You see Paul say in Romans chapter 5, but we rejoice in our suffering. In, not apart from, not after a season of, not despite of, but in our suffering, during it. This is totally foreign to the world's view of joy. And the Bible says, 
unless you understand what Peter and Paul is talking about, unless you know why they say what they said, you don't really understand what joy is, where it comes from, how to get there. And now we read our passage today about Jacob's life. You see the same exact thing. Here we find Jacob, a man, as we'll study soon, who was in a very difficult spot, in a place of suffering. However, by the end of it, although the situ- this is really important, although the situation hasn't changed a bit, circumstantially, he was still in the same exact spot. Yet, by the end of it, he was able to find joy and even fall into worship. In it? During it? How did he get there? What did he see? And is this kind of joy available to, available to us today? Well, let's take a look at our passage. Three points. The story of a man defeated and grew in godliness in it because of a God who held him through it. The story of a man defeated and grew in godliness in it because of a God who held him through it. First point, the story of a man defeated. So we've been going through a series called The Life of Jacob the past few weeks, if you've been with us, right? And if you remember what we saw just before of verses 10 to 22 of our passage today, we see Jacob's family was filled with conflict and brokenness. What exactly happened? If you remember, Jacob just got done lying to his blind father, Isaac. Why? So that the father would believe that Jacob was his older brother, Esau. So that Jacob could steal the inheritance that Isaac was going to originally give to Esau. You remember? And after that happened, what what happened? The the family kind of collapsed, right? The mom told Jacob to run and live with his grandfather, Laban, in a place called Haran or Padan Aram, as we just read. Why did the mom tell him to do that? One reason, to find a wife there, to secure a future for himself. But two, the older brother Esau was trying to kill him. Esau got so upset that Jacob stole his inheritance, he sought to murder him. And the mom said, go, run. So, so this is the setting of the passage today. Jacob was in the middle of running away from his parents' house to Laban's house, his, his grandfather's house in, in Haran. Look at verses 10 to 11. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, Bruce Walkey, a leading Old Testament scholar, along with all the leading commentators in, in Genesis, would point this out. They would say that the setting of the scene in Genesis plays a huge role in what the narrative is trying to communicate and tell you. It's trying to say something. The setting of the scene is trying to say something. So what is the setting of the scene trying to, say, he, trying to say here? You read it again, and you know the context of what's going on, and you can almost taste the defeat. You can taste it. Where was Jacob? One, gives no information about the place. It was just a random place. He came to a certain place. Doesn't matter where. Not much concern where. Just, just some place. Two, it's a dark place. The sun had set. And nighttime in Genesis often communicates either danger or a sense of defeat. Three, it was an uncomfortable place. He only had a rock for comfort. No bed, just a stone for a pillow. In other words, friends, the author here is trying to show us through the setting of the scene, a defeated man who was in a random, dark, and uncomfortable place. Have we been there before? Now, what brought Jacob to this random, dark, and uncomfortable place? Well, if you remember the story, one, Jacob was haunted by his past. He was being forced out of his home because of something bad he did, because of a mess up he did. Behind him was regret. Two, 
Jacob was a man threatened by his present. He was being chased by his own older brother Esau, who was trying to kill him because he stole his inheritance. So not only behind him was regret, but beside him was a threat. And third, as if these two things aren't enough, in front of him awaits even more suffering. If you know uh, the book of Genesis, you'll read a few chapters ahead, and you'll see once Jacob actually arrived in Haran to meet his grandfather Laban, what happened? Laban tricked him. His own grandfather fooled him and lied to him at his own cost, at great expense to Jacob. So here we see, what do we see? We see a man who is lying in defeat because one, he has a dark past that haunts him. Two, he has a troubling present that threatens him. And three, he has an uncertain future that worries him. Here lies a man who is feeling the guilt of a dark past, the fear of troubling present, and the anxiety of an uncertain future, all at the same time. That, that put anyone in a random, dark, and uncomfortable place, wouldn't it? Can we relate to what Jacob is going through? Some of you might have reacted to one of those things more than the other when I said the guilt of a dark past. For some of you, something came to mind, something popped up. For some of you, when I said the fear of a troubling present, something might have came to mind. And for others, when I said the anxiety of an uncertain future, certain things might have very quickly, automatically, without effort, came to mind. For some of you, it might be two of those things, or perhaps even three. And it's not just information. It's, it's, it's emotive feelings that come up with it. Now, I don't know what it is for you, and if you can't relate with Jacob at all, if some reason you haven't felt the sense of guilt or fear or anxiety, um, it's, it's, it's noteworthy um, to know that it will happen. <laughs> Don't worry, just give life a little bit more time. That's the promise of a broken world. It's going to happen, so don't check out. This is, this is for you too. Okay, But, friends, we see by the end of the passage... God, through this passage, is promising us something unbelievable. I want us to see the hope God offers us. Let's skip to the end of the passage. Look at verse 17. Look at Jacob, a man truly in a place of defeat, yet by the end of the story, he was able to joyfully worship. Look at, look at verse 17. After Jacob woke up from his sleep, again, notice, I can't stress this enough. After Jacob woke up from his sleep, although the circumstances hasn't changed at all, Although he hasn't moved an inch from this random, dark, and uncomfortable place, he can yet say in verse 17 what? How awesome is this place? He's still in the darkness. He's still in the random discomfort. But yet he can say, how awesome is this place? Does that not sound awfully familiar with Paul's view of joy in Romans chapter 5? With Peter's view of joy in 1 Peter 4, they say rejoice where? in your suffering, in the dark place, not after it, not despite it. Why were they able to do, to do that? Why were they able to say that? Because they all realized that through it, God was in the middle of doing something sacred in their lives. Point number two, how they grew in godliness in it. Friends, think about it. Before this passage, what was Jacob doing? He was trying to get joy by the means of his own power, right? He was trying to get his father's blessing by his own strength and ability. He was trying to get his 
it by his own strength? What philosophy of joy was Jacob submitting under? It's secularism. He believed that if by my own power, by my own independent means, I can get my it in life, which for him is his father's blessing, then I'll truly be happy. His joy, therefore, was dependent upon his own power and his own strength to find it. But what did God do? As we just saw in point one, he allowed Jacob's self-sufficient methods of fulfilling, of finding joy, bring him to a random, dark, and uncomfortable place filled with guilt, fear, and anxiety. In other words, God did not let Jacob prevail to find his joy even after he's found his it in life. We experience that, don't we? Didn't you pray to be married? Wasn't that your it? Didn't you want to have kids? Wasn't that your it? Didn't you want a boyfriend? Didn't you want a girlfriend? Wasn't that supposed to be it for you? But then we notice that our spouses and our boyfriends and girlfriends that's supposed to make us feel companionship actually makes us feel more lonely sometimes, don't they? And our jobs that's supposed to give us security sometimes give us stress. And our kids that's supposed to be the source of our greatest happiness sometimes becomes a source of great hardship. Why is that? God did not let Jacob find joy after he, through his own power and means, get it because, because of this. If God allowed Jacob to find true joy in whatever he thought his it in life was, then Jacob would fall into the lie, the gruesome lie of thinking that he can find joy by his own power and his own strength. He would fall into the lie that says joy can be found by being mighty and formidable. Right? If joy, if his joy, if my joy is dependent upon me finding my it in life, then in order to be joyful, I must be the kind of person who has the power and the might to get it. But that is a lie from the depths of hell. If Satan, if Satan can just make us believe that we can find joy by powerfully driving through life and finding whatever our it is, if he makes you believe that, then he would have successfully bred chaos. It caused a mess. It already has. Everywhere. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to go far. I saw this in the playground this week. In our house, in Kamang, there's a playground. Elena, my daughter, she was playing in the playground, and she saw a kid with a bubble machine. She saw her it. She thought to herself, that's my it. What did she do? She got big, she powered up, and she forcefully grabbed the bubble machine from the smaller kid. She got her it, she was happy, but the other kid cried in despair. His joy and happiness was ripped out of his hands by someone else that's more powerful. Then sure enough, another boy, I'm not lying, this actually happened, another boy, I won't name names, bigger than Elena, older than Elena, ran to her and forcefully grabbed the bubble maker from her. And of course, Elena cried as well. Let me rephrase that. She howled in the depths of agony. <laughs> She's lost her it. That's supposed to make me happy. And now the playground is filled with chaos. 
multiple children in despair and one happy kid. Until, of course, the next kid comes, you see. You see the pattern there? What are we seeing in this playground? A picture of what will happen when we think that joy can be found through power, through might, through strength in our own means. It's a, it was a secular playground. <laughs> I, know, I know it's a playground, but it's indicative to what often happens in the world, isn't it? When we view, when we view that our joy is, is, is based on us being powerful enough to get it, that's exactly what happens. Chaos. This is exactly what Jacob did in his past. He forcefully stole the older brother's blessing through his power and means by being big and strong. And he sought joy by that. And God let that ruin him. Why? So that God can open Jacob's eyes to how man was actually made to experience joy. Not through power and might and bucking up and getting the its in life, but through meekness, through poverty of spirit, through a contrite heart and humility of soul. God was trying to teach Jacob that, and that's exactly who Jacob became by the end of the passage. After God taught him all this through the suffering, let's, let's skip to the end of the passage. Go to verse 20 and 22. Look at what Jacob said. After he went through the suffering, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will give it, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house. You see that the humility there? It, it's drenched with meekness. If, if he does this, and I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And in this stone which I have set up a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Acknowledging God as the source of power, not himself. Listen to his words. Listen to a humble and meek and contrite Jacob became. Completely opposite to who he was before. He became a man who no longer sought joy by his own power and strength, but in a meek and humble heart. Listen to his words. Listen to how lowly he was. He was completely dependent to God. If God will be with me, that's meekness. If God will keep me, it's humility. If God will give me bread, if God will clothe me, if God will bring me safely home. Lowliness of heart, not buck up power. In other words, friends, here, here's what happened. God allowed Jacob to experience the pain of finding joy through power because he wanted to show him that true lasting joy can only be found through meekness, lowliness of heart, contriteness, and a poverty of spirit. Let me show you. Let me show you. The opposite of the war zone playground that we just heard about, filled with people wanting to find joy through power and might, which only lasted long enough until their its in life got taken away from them. Contrast to that, the joy that comes not from power and might, but from meekness and humility is much more consistent and long-lasting, and that's what God wanted to show. Let, let me show you. You can't experience this joy without being meek. See, if you're not meek, if you're not meek, you will never experience the joy forgiving others. You're, you ever felt that before? The joy you get when you forgive somebody else who doesn't deserve it. You ever felt that joy? and the reconciliation that comes after that? You felt that? You need meekness to feel that. Because or else you won't forgive. Notice too, this joy can't be robbed by suffering. Because when someone wrongs a meek person, for the meek person, this wrong 
becomes an opportunity for them to experience the powerful joy of forgiving. If you don't have a lowliness of heart, you'll never experience the joy of putting others first. You ever felt that? You ever felt the joy of letting go of your rights so that somebody else may be blessed by them? You felt that? Maybe you felt bits of it in your life. You need a lowness of heart to experience that kind of joy. And notice again, this joy can't be robbed by suffering because when a person who is lowly at heart puts others first, even if it costs them, they don't dread it. It's their joy, you see. If you're not contrite in heart, you will never experience the joy of being forgiven by somebody else. You won't feel it. You ever felt that? When you finally, when you finally dig up the courage to say the words, I'm sorry, and then experience somebody else forgiving you when you don't deserve it. You ever felt that before? You need contriteness to feel that. You will never experience that if you don't have a contrite heart because without a contrite heart, you will never say, I'm sorry. Notice one more time, the joy of a contrite man can still be experienced in suffering. Why? Because when a contrite man makes a mistake, it's an opportunity for him to say, I'm sorry, and experience the joy of forgiveness. It can't be robbed. Lastly, if you're not poor in spirit, you'll never experience the joy of learning from your own mistake. You never will. Because unless you're poor in spirit, you won't be able to admit that you've messed up. You're always right. Everyone else is always wrong. But the joy of those who are poor in spirit can't be robbed by suffering. Why? Because when someone who is poor in spirit messes up, it becomes a classroom in which they can grow from instead of a courtroom where they must defend themselves to the death. You want that kind of joy? Do you really want it? The joy of forgiving others instead of putting them down? The joy of experiencing forgiveness instead of self-defensive pride? The joy of being able to learn from mistakes instead of denying it. The joy of putting others first instead of holding on to your rights so tightly at other people's expense. You want that? Then you must grow in meekness. You must grow in contriteness, in poverty of spirit, in humility. If you don't, you won't have this joy. And friends, how does God make us that kind of person who is meek and poor in heart? By letting us buck up at times. He allows us to get strong and mighty, and he allows us to get the it's in our life, and then he lets that it disappoint us. That's how he does it, over, and over, and over, and over, and over again, until you finally give up. Give up. Until our stubborn hearts finally realize, I can't find joy by being someone who is powerful and mighty but by in meekness of heart, in contriteness, in a humble heart. That's the kind of person who experiences true lasting joy, even in suffering. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said in Matthew 5, right? Blessed are the who? Poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5. A broken spirit and a contrite heart God will not despise. Psalm 51. And in this dark place, that's exactly what Jacob realized. This is exactly what happened. God let him seek for joy through his own power and might. God allowed him to experience the consequences of that. Wasn't that what you wanted, Jacob? Wasn't that what you prayed for? Was that really it in life? And finally, here in our passage today, Jacob gave up. He no longer shouts out with prideful, I will, but he speaks with a meek and humble vow filled with 
if God. If God. In other words, friends, if you're in a random, dark, and uncomfortable place like Jacob, the Bible says, rejoice. Rejoice, that means God hasn't given up on you yet. This is why Paul says, rejoice in your suffering, for it produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character hope. It means he's still working in you. He's still trying to make you meek and lowly in heart. And it's been a while, hasn't it? I know, it's been a while for me too. Rejoice in it. He's still committed to you. And when you realize this, when you realize what this is suffering is really all about, you will be able to say what Jacob said in verse 17 in regards to his place of suffering. Notice again, he hasn't stepped out of it yet. He woke up in the same exact spot he was in, and yet he said, how awesome is this place? It's God's workshop. Because when we understand what God's trying to do, when we truly believe the result of the refining work is worth it, all of a sudden, this dark, random, uncomfortable place will become God's holy, divine workshop for the care and benefit of your soul. Look at, look at the setting here. Remember the scene of the setting plays a huge role in what Genesis is trying to communicate. Let's go to verse 17. What did Jacob say in verse 17? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. He hasn't moved an inch away from his suffering, but he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Remember verse 11. This is interesting. Verse 11 this place was merely a random, dark, and unnamed certain place, right? But now, this random, dark place in verse 11 became what in verse 17? Became the house of God. Look at the uncomfortable rock pillow that he had in verse 11. What did it become for Jacob in verse 18? So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. The uncomfortable stone pillow became what? It became a pillar that signified God's faithfulness. A random dark place became God's house, and the uncomfortable, simple rock became a representation of God's faithfulness. A commentator notes, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Jacob's painful expedition became a sacred pilgrimage. And when we finally realize that, this dark place is all about that, we will say the same thing he said, how awesome is this place? But here's our tendency. Our tendency is that this dark place, this, this workshop of God's divine work is so undesirable to us, so often we trick our hearts and we say, God, I, I don't need all that. I, don't, I, I get it. I've read, I've read books called Humility. You know, I've, I don't need any more lessons. I've, I'm, I got it. Well, first, think about what you just said. If you, if you, what you just said is that you're humble and you're contrite enough that you don't need to be more humble. That's a good sign that you're not humble and you're not contrite and you're not there yet. And second, even someone like Paul needed it. The end of his, at the end of his days, why do you think God gave him the thorn in his flesh, Second Corinthians says? Why did he have a thorn in his flesh? Paul himself said, this is why, so that he would increasingly believe that God's grace is sufficient for me. God needed to give him a thorn in his flesh so that he would continually believe that God's grace is sufficient for me. Not my own power, not my own strength. In other words, God is saying even someone like Paul needs help to be meek. Even someone like Paul needs additional help to be poor in spirit. Do you really think you're above it? We all need it. And a loving God won't stop. 
until we grow in meekness, in contriteness, in poverty of heart. He loves you so much. He won't stop because if he does, he'll be robbing you from the deep joy that is available to you, a joy that perseveres through suffering, in suffering, a joy that you have never been able to truly grasp before. That's, that's why. Now, there's still a very big answer, uh, question unanswered because we often see people go through this dark place that Jacob went through, right? But yet, they didn't come out at the other end of it poor in spirit. They didn't come out at the end of it meek and contrite. Some actually went the other way. We've seen people like that. Probably we've experienced that in our own lives. We go, we go through something hard. What happens? We buck up even more. We try to get even more powerful, even more self-sufficient, saying, I will not let that happen to me ever again. I'm going to make sure I'm more powerful this time. And we become more self-sufficient. We actually become more hard-hearted. Or some actually gets crushed down. Absolutely crushed, cast down. Not with the kind of meekness and blessed poverty of spirit that Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 5. I mean, I mean thrown to the dark, darkest, hopeless despair. They get absolutely crushed, hopelessly. Some people buck up and get more. Some people get crushed. So how was Jacob able to go through this dark place without falling into either of those things. He didn't buck up. He didn't get more crushed in a, in a, in a hopeless way. He actually grew in meekness and contriteness. What did God do? Let's end, last, let's end at this last point. Studying what, let's study what Jacob saw. This is the key. If we want, us, want our sufferings and disappointments to be an awesome place of rejoicing, where in it and through it God gives us the joy of meekness and humility, we have to see what Jacob saw. A God who refuses to let us go and holds us through it. Third point. So what happened? How did Jacob's uncomfortable dark place become an awesome place of worship? God showed himself to Jacob through a dream. Now I want to point out, we're not meant to idolize dreams here. The main point of the text and, and what the author is saying isn't, the main point isn't how God showed Jacob, it's what God showed Jacob. Okay? So what did Jacob see? What did God show Jacob first? Jacob saw a God that was eternally consistent. Eternally consistent. Look at what God said in verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. What is he saying? He's saying the same promise that I made to your grandfather, Abraham, and to your father, Isaac, I'm making to you. I'm eternally consistent. If I make a promise, I don't change. That's what he saw. First, he saw a God that was eternally consistent. Second, he saw a God that was all-powerful because he controls even angels. A being so grand, angels, beings so grand, that when two angels opened their mouths in Isaiah chapter 6, what happened? An earthquake. You ever been near an airplane when it, when it takes off without earmuffs on? The sound is so overbearing, the ground kind of shakes a little bit. Two angels opened their mouths in Isaiah 6, what happened? The temple shook. Beings so grand, yet they bow a knee to our God. They worship him. This God is not only eternally consistent, he's all-powerful. Third, he saw a God that was unbelievably gracious. Notice the wording. He saw a staircase was set up on earth. It was put down on earth. Intentional language there to make us know that it didn't originate from earth. It came from the heavens, initiated to earth. It was put on earth. Remember the context of the story. Jacob doesn't deserve this visit. That's what he's trying to say. Absolutely not. He just messed up royally. He tore his family apart. He got himself into this dark place. This was not a deserved visit, friends. This was pure grace. 
So not only he saw God that was eternally consistent, all-powerful, gracious, but then fourth, Jacob saw God that was totally committed to him. Look at the promises God told Jacob in verse 15. Behold, look at how committed he is. Behold, I'm with you. And I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. This is it. This is why Jacob was able to go through his place of suffering and not end up being crushed by it or bucking up more through it, but grow in meekness in it. It's how, well, he, he saw a God that was committed to him. That's, that's, that gives him peace. He saw a God that was all-powerful in his suffering, and he could have removed it if he wanted to. That gave him comfort. And he saw a God that was eternally consistent, even in his suffering. Think about it. Deduce it logically. If God is gracious and committed to him, this suffering, therefore, is not happening because God doesn't love Jacob. If God is all-powerful, this suffering isn't happening because God isn't able to remove it from Jacob. If God is eternally consistent, the suffering isn't caused by God changing his mind about Jacob. This gave him peace, comfort, and security. Deduce it. Deduce it. If it's not because he doesn't love Jacob, if it's not because he isn't able to remove it from Jacob, if it's not because he somehow changed his mind about Jacob, then why is it happening? Deduce it. It must be. It must be that this is what's best for him. That's what Jacob saw, the true God who is consistent through it all. Gracious, powerful, committed. That's what got him through this dark place. In other words, he saw a God that was performing soul surgery. This dark place was a God performing soul surgery under the meticulous care of his powerful, gracious, and eternal commitment to him. That's why I didn't crush him. Now, you might say that's great for Jacob. That's good for Jacob, but, but God never came to me like this. I never saw any of that. How can I have the same assurance? How can I know that an all-powerful God even exists? And if he does, how do I know that he's gracious and that he loves me? Because I've never seen what Jacob saw. Well, see, friends, you have. You have seen it. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. Where? Let's go to Jesus' word in John 1.51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. What is Jesus, what is he talking about here? He's referring to the very dream that Jacob had in the Old Testament in our passage today. Jacob saw a ladder initiated by the heavens, brought down to earth, where angels ascended and descended on it, right? Who is this ladder? Jesus is saying, it's me. It's me, the Son of Man. How? How did Jesus become the ladder that connects the heavens to us? Through the cross. That's, that's what God was trying to show Jacob. He's showing us the cross. What is the cross, friends? It's a place where God descended and died in your place so that you may ascend and be with him. You see, on the cross, God is showing us everything he, shot, he, he tried to show Jacob. He's trying to show you I'm eternally consistent. It's been predicted all throughout the Old Testament. I'm all-powerful. Right? I defeated death itself. I'm unbelievably gracious. While you were yet sinners, I died for you. And I'm forever committed to you. You've seen it. it. On the cross. On the cross, he's showing you everything he showed Jacob. And he seals it with his blood. You have comfort, peace, and security in your suffering because Jesus Christ on the cross took upon himself all the pains that was meant for you. So if you're here today, and you've received Christ as Lord and Savior. In other words, you've been redeemed and sealed by this blood. 
Why are you still suffering then, you might ask? Well, d deduce it. Let's deduce it. It can't be because he doesn't love you. Just look at the cross. It can't be because he's not powerful enough to take it away from you. Just look at the cross. It can't be because he changed his mind about you. Look at the cross. And it can't be because he's not committed to you. So why? Why? It must be, it must be that soul surgery is in progress, performed under the meticulous care of an all-powerful, gracious, eternally committed God who loves you, who would even give his life to secure your faith with him eternally. So when this happens, friends, rejoice. When your it in life disappoints you, when it gets taken away, when it gets ripped away from your hands, don't buck up. Don't get big. Rather, let it make you meek. Grow your heart towards contriteness and humility because if you do, if you, if you partake with what, with what he's trying to do, you'll experience a kind of constant joy that your it in life could have never given you in the first place. And if you're here today and you're still exploring the gospel, be careful. It's very easy to hear me say this. It's very easy to hear me say, Christianity says God will love you if you're contrite and meek. That's totally opposite to what I'm trying to say. It's completely opposite to what, to what the pastor is saying. Remember, when did God show himself to Jacob? It was, it was when he was at his worst, before he was meek and contrite, before he was still bucking up. He was right after he committed a terrible sin while he was still trying to escape his dark past. That's when God showed up. And that's what made Jacob meek because he realized he didn't deserve it. The gospel doesn't say your humility is what makes God save you. If that's the way you think, you're not going to be humble at all. You'll be pretty prideful because you're humble. The gospel says, this is what it says, that when you don't deserve it, God died for you. When you're at your lowest, the heavens initiated to you. Where? How? Through the birth and death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's where our source of meekness comes from. While we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't buck up. Don't get strong. Get meek. Get contrite. Know what it means to be lowly at heart. Then and then only will you find a joy that transcends suffering. Let's pray. What a truth that we so often run away from and not want to hear and despise. We hate suffering, God. We don't want it. We don't think we need it. But we pray that you be more committed to our growth and our sacred pilgrimage toward you more than we are. I pray that you give us what you deem is best, for you are all-powerful, you are all-knowing, you are all-merciful, and you love me more than I love myself. Let the gospel allow us to rest and find peace and find security and comfort in the fact that this isn't some random, dark, uncomfortable place, but it is your workshop, done soul surgery under the meticulous care of an all-powerful, loving God who died for me. Let us now work with your spirit and not fight against it. Help us grow. Let us be meek. Make us poor in spirit and experience the kind of joy that the Bible talks about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.